you know, I'm seeing co-living properties where people are building duplexes with 15 beds and baths yeah. each, where every five suites share a kitchen and a laundry area. You know, we're seeing a lot more townhomes. The change is coming. You know, capital markets and, and the capitalistic model is that the building flows to where it's viable. And so it's happening in areas that are allowing it. And there are certain geographies that are more favorable uh, than others. So I think you're seeing this densification. It's just not happening at the pace we need it to. You know, even in a local market, I live in the Los Angeles area. I bought a house in La Cañada where I live. It took us three years to get a permit. Three years to get a permit for a ground up construction. And so the reality is that our communities actually have a disinterest in solving the very problem that you and I have an interest in solving because people don't want change. I'm Clayton Collins, CEO at Housing Wire, and today I have the privilege of interviewing Ray Mathoda, CEO of Anchor Loans. Ray brings more than 25 years of experience across real estate, finance, and technology to this conversation, and she was a 2023 Housing Wire Woman of Influence. Most recently, Ray was the co-founder at Emerge Life Sciences, and before that, served as a CEO of Zome and co-CEO at Genesis Capital, a specialty finance company that was ultimately acquired by an affiliate of Goldman Sachs. Today, we talk about the fix and flip market, home builder lending, affordable housing issues and data, and raise plans for Anchor in 2024. If you enjoy this conversation, I urge you to take advantage of our early bird registration for Housing Wire, The Gathering. This is our capstone event in 2024 that connects the entire housing industry from real estate to mortgage and everything in between. April 21st through 24th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Check out housingwirethegathering.com. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Ray Mathoda, CEO of Anchor Loans. Ray, thanks for joining us for an episode of Housing News. Delighted to be here, Clayton. Eight months in, in a, in a new CEO role, I know your your time is busy and coveted and valuable, so I appreciate you making time. Tell us about the, the first eight months. It has been an amazing uh, moment to re-enter, uh, I'll call it the RTL, residential transition lending industry. Uh, and the first eight months have been uh, amazing, I would tell you. Uh, I have... Uh, Long admired anchor from my days uh, co-running Genesis, co-leading Genesis, circa 04 to 08. Yep. And now I got in the last eight months to lift the hood and see what's what's in there. And uh, I found a lot of good stuff, uh, really some amazing people that have been in the industry 25 years and know, you know how to make fix and flip and construction loans like no one else. Uh, but I've also had the opportunity to now combine that talent with some amazing world-class construction talent, people that have seen many different companies, banks, non-banks, et cetera. Uh, it's a moment of great risk as well as opportunity. So an amazing time to be uh, at the helm of Anchor. Really cool. So what what created this opportunity? So I, I've you know read a little bit about the announcement of your role and the relationship with Pretium, uh, the ownership level of Anchor, but tell us how like all the pieces converge to create this opportunity for you. You know, it's really interesting, Clayton. I've sort of had a 20, 25-year career, uh, mostly in housing and real estate, but there's been a secondary element where I've been investing and building businesses along the U.S.-India corridor in the biotech industry. Um, And actually, once I left Genesis and eventually Zoom, uh, which is out of Dallas, where you guys are located, circa 2020, I actually thought maybe my work in housing was done. 
Um, but as you know, as it never uh, is, it's the industry you know, that pulls you back COVID, in. And, and that's exactly right. As I took a step back during <laughs> COVID, I actually realized I have it exactly the opposite. My work in India and the yeah. biotech industry is mostly done and can be handed off to the many capable India uh, people in India and along that corridor. But in fact, the U.S. housing market is not where I thought it would be 15 years off the Great Recession. And there's so much to do. So I'm really thrilled to be back. Uh, and I think it's an incredibly interesting moment to be involved in mortgage real estate and affordable housing, all of which are very interesting to me. And really what brought this opportunity for me together for me was a uh, I'm a big I'm a big one that believes in social entrepreneurship and, and and doing work that has a purpose and a meaning. And I believe the housing sector is, again, at the epicenter of of some of the core things that need to change in America to make lives better for Americans going forward, whether it be rental or ownership housing. Uh, and I really found a partner uh, that's really world class and has a long term vision and alignment. They're not trying to flip anchor. They're trying to build anchor into something that's never been created before to really support the needs of the housing market. So it's, it was sort of that chemistry and confluence events that came together uh, to make the opportunity happen. I don't think everybody that's involved in the world of mortgage lending or, or private lending would you know make the connection to like social entrepreneurship or social enterprise. T- tell us your view on why you think this is an impactful platform or can be an impactful platform. Well, I mean, you know, the first thing is housing, as I think we can all agree, is core to every human's life. Uh, Whether you're a renter, whether you're an owner, whether you're a wannabe renter, or whether you're somebody out on the street, or whether you're somebody on a Section 8 8 wait list, housing is pivotal to being safe and to being prosperous in life. Um, In terms of the housing sector today and what Anchor does, well, we do two main things. We basically help people create move-in ready homes by either taking an existing property, fixing it up and selling it, or we help somebody take a piece of land or a very old property and demolish it and build a brand new house that's much more relevant for today. When we look at the mortgage and the real estate industry of today, we actually have a really odd uh, dynamic. We have high prices, high mortgage rates, and very limited supply. And so the reality is that new buyers, millennials, the younger generation, which I think people in our generation need to, we have moral obligation to take care of the needs of our children and our future generation. The reality is a lot needs to happen. Uh, There's not enough market rate move-in ready housing for people that they can afford to get into. There's not enough affordable housing that we can get with some sort of subsidy people into. And so, and really, you know, economists think there's a shortage of something like four or five million homes in America because home building slowed down to a tremendous crawl after the Great Recession and never picked up back to pre-Great Recession levels. So I think there's a there, there's as much, if not more, to do than there has been certainly in my career in housing. So when you look at that total picture of four to five million homes short in the U.S. housing economy, that's going to be picked up from, from different places. And uh, there's the, like the, the large residential builders who are building large communities, um, which, you know, primarily kind of happens in this, like this, like sun, the sun states, like parts of California through Texas into the Southeast. Um, then you also have uh, fix and flip, which you just talked about as well as like ground up rebuild. Can you give us a glimpse into like, the data or projection on where you think this shortage can be solved from and will be solved from in terms of kind of the mix between like large community, new home construction and kind of smaller projects? 
You know, Clayton, I wish I had a crystal ball to be tr- to try to say <laughs> what kind of percentages may come from what strategy, so to speak. But what I can say is it's going to take all of the strategies we can possibly deploy. It's going to take as many ADUs as possible, especially in high cost areas, uh, to densify. It's going to include things like the California SB9 law or other densification laws where you can take what has traditionally been a very large lot with a relatively small house to turn it into something that is different. It can still be a house with a little bit of outdoor space, but you may now have two, three, or four houses on the same square footage that you had before. Uh, You know, for a long time in the 90s and 2000s, we were moving from a 1,200 square foot house that we had post-World War II, 12 to 1,500 square foot, all the way up to 2,300 to 2,500 square foot homes. Well, that doesn't work anymore. We're going to have to migrate, I think, back from the larger McMansion type of thinking to a smaller home that was perfectly adequate for American families post-World War II and well into the 70s and 80s. Uh, so I think it's going to take, frankly, it's going to take many more townhomes, I'll say, yeah. uh, than single families. It might even take some of the commercial projects and the, re- the commercial spaces that are being affected by you know, this move to remote work. Uh, to a conversion of those properties where possible. It's a lot more challenging than it sounds, but into apartments uh, or homes of some sort. So I think it's going to take, frankly, all of the above and both the single family and the multifamily housing sector to solve the problem. One of the, you know, the, the promises of remote work has been less of a need for, for density and for people to be extremely close to a, to a city center. Do you see that thesis or theory reversing course and um, like having a continued draw to being for workers to need to be in high concentration areas versus kind of distributing out and, you know, to more rural or suburban homes where they still can achieve that two to 2000 to 2,500 square foot American dream home versus the, the town home. I actually think it's going to be more urban suburban rather than the true filtration yeah. of the people you know, back to places, rural areas where they can have super large homes. I mean, the data is showing that businesses are frankly not as productive. You can maintain a business for a while by going remote, but you cannot, and we're finding this at Anchor in a moment of great external environmental change, you cannot transform a business. It's very hard to build something new from scratch with everybody being dispersed on their own little island. Uh, wherever that might be. So I actually think, and and by the way, living very far away from dense populations is actually turning out to be pretty bad for people's mental health and uh, and meaningful social connections. So I think uh, there's going to be more of a migration back and we're going to need uh, uh, homes in more urban and suburban areas. And while there may be some jobs, technology jobs, so don't get me wrong, some jobs, some companies, a, per- more, a higher percentage of roles will be able to be remote. So you'll probably see a bolstering of the rural areas which actually suffered a lot post-Great Recession because everybody moved back to the urban core. So I do think there's going to be healthier dynamics in places that saw an out-migration of people, but I still think the problem and the need is primarily in the urban and the suburban areas for the reasons that I mentioned. So we've discussed on this show many times that we really don't have a national housing market. We have we have hundreds of MSAs that, that operate very differently. So this might be a, you know a tough question or, or a very um, multifaceted question. But what are the biggest hurdles that we face in these urban cores to actually you know achieving more housing inventory or more density? And you know with with 
uh, recognition of the fact that that answer probably looks really different in parts of the country. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I would tell you is it's happening, right? And I think if you go out and look at the kind of properties our developers are building today, it's happening. You know, I'm seeing properties, uh, co-living properties where people are building duplexes with 15 beds and baths yeah. each, where every five suites share a kitchen and a laundry area and a common area. You know, we're seeing a lot more townhomes. We're seeing people add ADU strategies and SB9 strategies. So I do think the change is coming. You know, capital markets and, and the capitalistic model is that the building flows to where it's viable. And so it's happening in areas that are allowing it. And there are certain geographies that are more favorable uh, than others. So I think you're seeing this densification. It's just not happening at the pace we need it to. And so, you know, and that's where all of the challenges come in that I think you're referencing to, you know, even in the local market, I live in the Los Angeles area. This isn't one market. It's dozens of markets. I bought a house in La Cunada where I live. It took us three years to get a permit. Three years to get a permit for a ground up construction. And so the reality is that our country is actually in our communities actually have a disinterest in solving the very problem that you and I have an interest in solving for the next generation because people don't want change. They don't want the big multifamily building or the dense townhome development, you know, next to where they live. So it's sort of the classic issue of the generations in a way, a clash of the generations. So the older generations, truth be told, are holding things back and the older generations are the ones who vote. So their representatives are slowing things down. But I would still say that the force of nature is in favor of densification because the country has to mature and transform and evolve into where we need to go. And so change is already happening and I only see it accelerating. Yeah, no, I, I hear you like completely. I mean, we're in a community in Dallas that I appreciate density because it means better restaurants and coffee shops and retail and culture and, and walking distance. But at the same time, hate that our street is incredibly busy and it's going to be years before our kids are actually able to go ride their bikes on the sidewalks because there's a lot of traffic. So it's a, it's a push and a pull. Um, I like the quote that you used that building happens where it's viable or building will flow to where it's viable. Can you talk about where that viability is happening right now? So where are you seeing your clients, your, your borrowers, your builders start to flow and focus their attention? Absolutely. Uh, I'll share a few themes around that. I think the first thing I would say is I definitely see less regulation and less barriers, generally speaking, on the, on the more red states. So I'll say housing is flowing right uh, in America toward the eastern seaboard, toward the southeast uh, and the smile states, but particularly the smile states towards the middle and the east of America. Uh, the second thing I would say is housing is flowing to wherever costs are relatively more affordable, which means that there is a lot more construction starting to happen outside of California versus in the western states of California, Arizona, uh, uh, you know, Nevada, and things like that. Doesn't mean there's not uh, a lot of development still happening on the western seaboard. But the density and the volume of units that are coming out are more uh, on the eastern side. And finally, you know, availability of materials and labor, I think, would be the final factor. And that generally tends to align with the first two that I mentioned. Okay, interesting. So it's where consumer demand is. It's where resources and labor are. And um, then also where builders can kind of get through municipal or regulatory red tape and actually get product to market. So 
to give us a glimpse into the the lending side. So is business purpose lending a hurdle for any of these builders or are there enough alternatives out there for financing when builders have the right projects? I would say there's healthy competition and availability of credit in the market still. However, credit availability is down relative to maybe a couple of years ago before the Fed raised rates, what is it, 525 yeah. bips? Uh, and the reality is, uh, honestly, for cap for the lenders in the market, capital markets yields have actually gone up even more than 525 bips. So cost of capital for a lender has gone up more than that. Uh, so with that being said, there is definitely less availability uh, of credit, uh, especially for construction loans, which we desperately need. And especially for higher dollar construction loans, people don't tend to like higher dollar construction loans. And banks are actually stepping away. Uh, from builder finance. They used to be primarily the primary source of financing for for builders. And that started to really change with sort of the deposit prices and deposits flowing out of banks uh, to, you know, money market funds and things like that. So there's a lot of variables, but it's still a healthy market. Yields are good. You know, people can earn 10, 11, 12% on loans in the market. And as long as you have good developers doing good projects, uh, there's plenty of lending capacity. But remember, in the market of today, Things are so tight because of mortgage, consumer mortgage rates and where they've reached and because of the mortgage lock-in effect of consumers not wanting to leave their 3 and 4% mortgages that the issue is becoming the lack of inventory for developers to buy, you know, because people aren't selling. So there's definitely tightness in the market and things are not at the levels that they need to be by any stretch of the imagination. But by all means, development and development finance is very much healthy. And I'm, I'm seeing as many people entering the lending side of it as have exited or slowed down their financing. So there's a lot of changeover happening right now. So the people that are entering, these are new or existing non-bank lenders who are popping up in the construction space or like kind of what's the what's the complexion of a new entrant in um, investment or, or real estate development lending? I'll say it's generally speaking, private money, privately managed okay. money in all of its varietals, non-bank lenders, you know, credit finance companies, just private money in general, with the reduction in the bank finance in the space, it's private money that's looking in uh, to step in because they see the long tailwind, I'll call it, of the big need for housing in the country and the big need for renovated housing in the country. So at Anchor, with you know some bank lenders exiting the market and new competition in the private money space, how do you position your business to, to be competitive and win new relationships? We are, um, look, we're the oldest, uh, we're literally the oldest hard money lender, residential transition lender, uh, whatever the new term of art is for our industry. <laughs> we're the ones that have been doing it for longest. And we've had sort of the largest scale, the first to hit a billion, the first to cross 10 billion, et cetera. So we sell a story of stability and service and scale and expertise. Uh, we do have to price up. I would say that we've been uh, you know, very generous to our customers. They have not seen a 525 BIP increase or a 700 BIP increase, which is closer to the capital markets cost increase. So we are, uh, you know, slowly but surely repricing our customers because at the end of the day, the customer pricing has to align with the capital markets pricing. Uh, but we're very much active. And frankly, we're finding plenty of opportunity, especially uh, both in fix and flip, uh, but especially in ground up construction and on the builder finance side, where there's a tremendous need to go build those homes, hopefully smaller homes, uh, you know, versus historically, but go build those homes that are simply missing in the in the housing market, and where that need is even magnified by the mortgage lock-in effect, because less people are selling the existing homes that they have. So new construction has to make up for the stickiness and the lack of supply from existing home sales. But that's going to take some years to ramp up. So with in the 
the residential like 30 year fixed rate market when we see uh, consumer rates ref- reflect pretty clearly what's happening in capital markets. Um, and it sounds like you have more cushion to absorb some of that uh, rate movement in your in your margin or like what, what what's the business rationale and not kind of moving with capital markets kind of in lockstep with pricing for for builder deals. You know, it's just a different structure, Clayton. The consumer market is repriced every second, every day. Uh, And for most of it, there's no credit risk investors are taking. Um, It's all being backed up by the GSEs or FHA HUD. None of that is true for our industry. So it's a smorgasbord in our industry of people uh, taking the kinds of actions that they think are appropriate. And a lot of it depends on their cost of capital. Is your cost of capital sub 5%? Is your cost of capital 5%? Is your cost of capital 7 or 800, you know, 7 or 8%? And so based on the unique, the diversity of players in our, in, in our industry and the fact that they do take credit risk, there's a very different dynamic than the consumer market. And people have, uh, I won't say that people haven't repriced customers up, but there's a lot of competition and the very best customers haven't been repriced up 525 bips, but the lower quality customers have. So there's a great diversity, a much greater diversity in pricing in the space than you see in the consumer side. What drives the difference between like that the highest quality customers versus the lowest? Is the, is this volume? Is this um, reputation? Some like credit risk uh, or credit profile? Like what's what's the driver between good and bad? It's 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 several of those layers. You know, it's the track record. How many projects have they done? Uh, how many have they done successfully? Uh, it's their credit score for sure, because you could have done a lot of projects, but you may be very disorganized and have bad credit and therefore not be a good credit risk. Um, it's the profitability of their projects and their ability to acquire projects in a way that um, that creates that profitable outcome. Because after all, our industry is about buying a home at today's price, adding value to it, and then selling it for a profit basically is today's price. Um, and so, and then it's that ability to execute on the construction project and to credibly do what they say they want to do. So if somebody's been building three, four, five homes a year and now wants to build 50, you usually, you know, look at them with a bit of a skeptical eye. And so it's all those layers that go into the credit underwriting process to determine who gets the best price and who everybody's competing for more versus uh, who may be having a higher yield. But don't get me wrong. People want the lower, um, the lower track record borrowers to move up the chain too. And sometimes they tend to be more profitable. Uh, than the customers that have done three, four, five hundred, or a thousand projects, because there's too much competition for those people at the top of the heap. So those dynamics are changing too, and and the less experienced builders and developers are seeing um, a credit availability just at higher prices uh, for themselves. And that dynamic definitely exists in mortgage lending and with originators and real estate agents, where the the top quartile are rarely the profit centers for the lenders or the the brokerages. It's those middle two quartiles where the margin is is driven from. So that dynamic makes a lot of sense. Um, and we're talking about builders and the the customers that you serve, Ray. How are they thinking? And I guess this flows to you as well. How are you thinking about home prices in in twenty twenty four and beyond? Do you are they uh, bullish on prices in most markets? Is that a, is that a risk that's being priced in at all? Like, how do you think about the direction of prices? Uh, Clayton, it's hard to it's hard to truly predict prices. As you know, you know, if you make a prediction, you're almost sure to be wrong. Um, it seems pretty clear. I would say a year ago, we were all very worried about home price declines because of the dramatic rise in rates. 
you know, history would have told you prices are going to go down. And, you know, there were some companies even predicting 15 to 25 percent reduction in national home prices, something which hadn't happened since the Great Recession or the Great Depression. It's only happened twice um, uh, in, you know, U.S. housing history as it's been tracked. But the reality is because of this mortgage lock in effect and people holding on to their three, four percent mortgages, people just aren't selling. But because of that, home prices bounce right back. And so the core, one of the core characteristics of our industry of renovation and builder finance is that we don't build in appreciation. Uh, we basically price the after repair value of the house, even if it's going to happen in a year or two at today's values. And I think that's still a pretty solid underwriting framework. Uh, we don't see a lot of risk for home price decline. So we're basically assuming a flat to slightly up housing market, but nothing game changing happening there from a number standpoint. All we can ask for is stability right now. But bringing it back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked about being short four to five million homes, I, I think if you believe that we have an inventory shortage, then it's very hard to bet on home prices in at a national level, at least like having uh, reductions of note in the in the future. I agree with you 100 percent. And I actually think even that four or five million, uh, frankly, is understated because when you look at affordable housing, and we look at when you look at the bottom of the pyramid, you know, I was on the board of the Housing Authority of City of L.A. Uh, for several years uh, in the late, uh, you know, from like circa 2006 to 10, 11 or 12. And it was really interesting. One of the things I observed was that there is no accurate tracking of unmet need for housing at the bottom of the pyramid. You know, there's so much unmet need that people literally stop tracking it. So like the Housing Authority, I remember at the time, this is 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. I think we had a wait list of two or 300,000 people. Well, that wait list had been stopped. They stopped adding people to that wait list because the velocity through the wait list was so slow and it was going to take so long to work through it. They stopped adding people. But the moment at one point they opened up the wait list, something like 300,000 people showed up. So I actually believe that when you come down to micro housing, so I think we need a lot more small, affordable housing. Uh, and I think that actually unmet need is understated because it's focused mostly on millennials and sort of the, the normal average median and average renters and buyers and not for the people at the bottom uh, that are not counted. So many of the builders that we talk to just talk about how hard it is to profitably build affordable housing and seeing builders continually, you know, as a, you know, as business operators themselves look, look up market and how do we, how do we go to a higher price point? How do we build more luxury? It, do you feel that that is a, a momentum wave amongst builders, like having the desire to go up market and find mar margin and, and the luxury end versus the affordable end? Or is there a, a subset of builders who knows and understands the affordable space and can win off a of scale? I mean, look, the, all the big builders build smaller houses, right? The people who do luxury usually do ten, less than 10 at a time, usually less than five at a time. Uh, and the reality of our society is that the top 1% has gotten very rich uh, off the internet, off of globalization and capitalism over the last 20 years. So there has been a lot of money to be made uh, in the luxury housing because often the price that that person is willing to pay for that is an emotional number that doesn't have much to do with the cost of building it. So there's no doubt in my mind that that's not going to change anytime soon and the luxury market will continue to be very attractive. But I don't think that's where the numbers come in. Uh, the numbers are still, you know, the DR Hortons, the Lennars, the top 200 builders are still building those three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollar houses. And you're starting to now see them change their product 
because of their, their lack of affordability to build smaller houses, houses with lesser amenities. So I definitely see more of the trend being in that direction. But I, you know, just given the nature of society and, and the increasing inequality, I think the luxury thing is going to go on, continue to go on as it has in the last 15 years. Yeah. So does that mean kind of create a, a housing market with like, that's just more polarized with more affordable, more luxury. And what does that do to kind of the, the center, the, um, you know, the, the house that we used to consider the, the starter home, which is, you know, feels less and less accessible when you start tracking the data. Yeah. I think the starter home becomes smaller, you know, mm-hmm. and it might be, it might have, it's likely to have less of a lawn and a green space than it did. I, th- I still think it'll have outdoor space because people are being pretty thoughtful about designs. Yeah. But I think the starter home gets smaller and the middle of the market actually remains stuck until mortgage rates come down, which I don't think will happen for a while. I don't think anybody's predicting that rates will come down. You know, Fed funds will come down to the zero to 1% range for five plus years, let's just call it. Maybe we'll get lucky and it, it'll happen faster. But I think the middle remains stuck. You know, people are wanting to age in place. So the, so the elder generation isn't moving out and people in the middle of their child rearing and family building years are certainly not going to give up their three, 4% mortgages unless they have to. So of course, housing will continue to move in those have to sell categories, but I think the middle remains stuck. Uh, and uh, entry level becomes smaller. So Ray, as as CEO of Anchor, as you look forward to 2024, what are the the must achieve projects or initiatives that you have to get done to to really be successful next year? So, um, you know, second year as the CEO, like w- what needle do you have to move to to be really successful in 2024? Um, you know, the big, the, the big needles, I would say, Clayton, are uh, number one, we have to diversify our business to truly make it national. Uh, the truth about our industry is that you said real estate is local. Actually, most mortgage lending in our industry is, I won't call it local, I'll call it regional. Most people are heavily concentrated in the areas uh, where they birthed their company. And we've been on this journey to go diversify into the top 20 to 30 markets, and we have to do a lot better job uh, foster at doing that. And then the second element we have to do is, and we're working very actively on, is, is, is making a big claim and entering that production home building market we've been talking about today, which typically folks in our space have stayed away from. They've been working on just one at a time houses, and we're now already working on many at a time. And that's going to be a big part of our future going forward. That's re- that's really cool. I'm excited to watch how that plays out. What are the, what, what are the steps you have to do to get into the production side? Like what, what has to change in the business model or, or access to capital? Like how do you get that done? Uh, there's layers and layers of that. You know, <laughs> you got to find the right capital because people who buy renovation loans typically won't buy builder loans. Uh, often you may need to fund those uh, uh, with a balance sheet and that's where Predium and that relationship with Predium becomes really crucial to us. Uh, I'm also a big fan of not taking somebody who's a renovator or an urban infill builder talent, you know, from a credit underwriting sales standpoint and converting them to the builder business. I think people miss a lot when they switch. So we got to go find that talent. And that's going to probably include, you know, talking to various regional bank teams and and builders and people that have worked at home builders. So we acquire that right talent. Uh, And then it's going to be leveraging, you know, the technology and the data to really map it to these new to these new sectors. So I don't think it's a bridge too far. I think it's an adjacency to our market, but I think doing it right requires actually all elements from the origination front, the product side, you know, the capital market side, the servicing side, all of that has to flow, including the cost of capital, the projects still have to pencil, as you pointed out a few minutes ago. Uh, on the distribution strategy, do you how do you work with regional lenders and like how do you get like the anchor 
brand and product suite in front of this talent? Um, we're working on that right now. Candidly, there's a lot of talent that's available at the regional banks because a lot of the regional banks that made a lot of builder loans are capped out from a capital and, and kind of construction loan ratio standpoint. So I think there's a dual play. Uh, the first one is to just attract teams, whether it's individual or actual teams that want to actually land at a place where they can continue to serve their clients because their banking alma mater or employer is unable to do that. And the second layer is actually uh, uh, aligning and creating strategic partnerships with those very lenders uh, to be able to offer products to their customers so they can retain their customers and maybe even partner with them on buying or restructuring their loans so we can partner on the balance sheet standpoint as well, because that's where a lot of the problems reside for the regional banks to hold on to those loans. And so we have initiatives to to actually do all of those underway at the moment. So you can go kind of recruit talent directly and bring in originators and relationship managers to work directly with the, the builders and investors, or you can build out wholesale relationships with some of the institutions who have had, you know, historical uh, line of business and, and builder and, and commercial, but might be tapped out or, or just might need a, a fresh product suite. I think so. And I think the way to do it is actually to do both. Yeah. You bring on a team, but you're not going to bring on 10 teams. So you bring on a team either put together from multiple places or, or a smaller number of places. And then you really enhance that by expanding your partnerships across the wide range of banks uh, to build a partnership strategy, both front end and back end. Awesome. Well, Ray, I'm, I'm sure there's some, uh, lucky loan originators out there in the commercial bank space might be listening to this and, uh, give you a ring. I can't thank you enough for sharing more about your journey at, at Anchor, what this first year has looked like and, uh, and helping fill in some of the gaps on our understanding of the real estate investor and builder space. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thank you to our listeners that take the time to go to Apple Podcasts and provide a review on the show. I want to share some a quick glimpse into what some of our listeners have shared. James D44 let us know that this is a great series of hugely important information for any real estate professional. DC girl Kayla shared, this is a great housing podcast that provides a great variety of information and insights on all things housing. 10 out of 10 recommend. This type of feedback is so energizing and drives us forward to continue producing great interviews for you. Please take a minute to go to the Apple podcast app and let us know what you think. Have a great day.